Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Welcome back. We are on lesson number 15. In our last episode, we started talking about the person and work of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we emphasized that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, no one can confess faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is the Holy Spirit who brings us into the kingdom of Christ uh, by granting us faith. So today we're going to take a little excursus into exactly that topic, uh, the church, as we speak about believers and what that means for us here in this life as we look at church and churches, plural. And uh, we'll start with a little bit of a history lesson. We've done this in a few episodes where we've looked at specific Bible passages And uh, we're going to get a little bit of Bible history again today as we talk about the brief summary of the early Christian church from about the period of 30 AD to about uh, the year 100 AD. So 50 days after Easter, after Christ rose from the dead, Jesus fulfills his promise and he sends the Holy Spirit. We call this day Pentecost. We know that 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized after hearing Peter preach a very powerful sermon that we read in the book of Acts. The infant church quickly began to grow, and uh, a persecution sets in and essentially scattered those Christians. And we'll see that as a pattern in the early church very often. Uh, The persecutions scatter Christians, but really this doesn't do anything to defeat Christianity. In fact, it only serves to spread and extend the kingdom of Christ. Since wherever these Christians flee, they bring with them the gospel. Now, Peter, who with the other apostles has remained in Jerusalem, now receives a vision by which God impresses on him that the gospel is not intended only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, which of course was always part of God's plan, going back to the promise that he made to Abraham and that in his seed all nations would be blessed. Meanwhile, the resurrected Christ appears to a man named Saul, who is a chief persecutor of Christians, and announces to him that he is to become his appointed apostle to the Gentiles. And of course, he is converted and becomes one of the greatest preachers of God's grace in Christ. Also, uh, since his work will be primarily among the Gentiles, he predominantly uses his Greek name, which you know him by as Paul, St. Paul. Now, another persecution broke out in Jerusalem and the Apostle James is killed. Peter, too, is imprisoned, but God works to save him. And with the other apostles, he continues to carry on the work of the Lord among the Jews. Paul, with his helpers, makes three missionary journeys, as we read about in the book of Acts, preaching the gospel in a large number of Gentile cities and founding many congregations. He eventually is arrested and taken to Rome as a prisoner, but even there he declares the crucified and risen Christ. He preaches the gospel. Now, according to church tradition, he dies as a martyr. Uh, He's killed for the faith around 67 AD. In the year 70 AD, the temple is destroyed by the Romans during a Jewish rebellion, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Not one stone was to be left on another. And according to tradition, only one of the apostles of those 12 died a natural death. 
and that was the Apostle John, who wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, sometime uh, shortly before 100 AD. So from this, we learn that having received power from the Holy Spirit, the apostles, according to the directions given them by Christ, were, in fact, his eyewitnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that gives you a little bit of a brief uh, Reader's Digest version of the history of the early church as we read it in the book of Acts. But now we're going to take a little closer look at the church because obviously when we look at Christendom today, we see that there are something like, and you can, you can Google this for yourself, and numbers may vary, but I want to say it's something like 30,000 different Christian denominations around the world. I mean, that's just crazy when you think about it. How does that happen? We'll answer that question in a little bit. But I think there's another aspect of it in that in our culture, everybody assumes that one church is basically interchangeable with the next and that all roads kind of get you to the same place. So you can kind of pick and choose whatever one fits your taste or, you know, understanding or beliefs about the Bible. Now, that's a very dangerous way to look at things. You know, when Jesus talked about true worshipers of God worshiping in spirit and truth, uh, a lot of people want to ignore that second part, the truth part. They'll, they'll focus on the first one. As long as I'm sincere in my beliefs, as long as I'm worshiping God from the heart, it doesn't really matter what church I belong to. But, of course, the truth of God is always important. And it's the most important, in fact, to Christians. So truth matters. And therefore, the differences between Christian denominations actually becomes very, very important. Rather than something that we just dismiss and look over, we would say at some point, not everybody can be right. Not everybody is holding on to the truth. And therefore, somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And how do we discern that and what do we do with that information? So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to, first of all, ask the question, what does the Bible teach about the church in general? What kind of characteristics can we find about Christ's church from the scriptures? In uh, his letter to the Romans, St. Paul says in chapter 12, we though many are one body in Christ. And often the scriptures refer to the church, the Holy Christian Church, as the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is one. There are not many churches there is one church, the body of Christ, the Holy Christian Church, which we'll, we'll get to more in that in a second. In the book of Acts chapter 5, we read that believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So certainly this one church includes men and women of all races and nations and ethnicities and so on and so forth. No one has a unique claim on that. It was for Jews and Gentiles alike. But again, the only way to the Father is through the Son. Romans chapter 8, St. Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And of course, we started that discussion last episode where we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and how it's not possible for somebody to confess faith in Jesus apart from that important work of the Holy Spirit. So only those who have the Spirit are the ones who belong to Christ, according to St. Paul. So that's an important point to remember. The church consists of believers and believers only, according to the scriptures. Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. 
For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So this church that we're speaking of is not something that we can see with our eyes. It is something that is known to God for certain, as we read in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord knows those who are his. Uh, But I think it's important that we acknowledge that we can't see faith in a person's heart. We can't see who belongs to the true church and who does not. And very often, You'll, you'll meet people who, who speak that way, though. I mean, uh, you know, that person's not a believer, that person's a believer. Well, all we can do is look at what somebody confesses, maybe look at how their actions might reflect that confession, but nobody can see into another person's heart and say that person's a believer or not a believer. So the church is known to God himself. It's invisible to us. No, I should say that. Uh, it's invisible to us. That doesn't mean that there's not certain visible marks by which we can identify the true church on earth, which we'll get to in just a second. In Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. To sanctify means to make holy. And he does this, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, this washing of water with a word is a reference to baptism. Where else do we find a washing of water that involves the word and promises of God. Obviously, we're speaking of Christian baptism, and it's by that that he sanctifies his church so that he might present that church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, this is holy and without blemish in God's sight. As we look at the church today, it's not hard to find spots and blemishes. It's easy to point out the hypocrites who have said one thing and done something else, who have scandalized the church through ungodly lifestyles or immoral behavior or whatever it might be. But the church, as God sees it, is holy and without blemish. It is washed clean and sanctified in the blood of Christ through the washing of water with the word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's only through faith in Christ that the church is holy, and it's only through faith in Christ that uh, believers, Christians, are able to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. As we're being built up, we'll see that the foundation then is none other than Jesus Christ himself, of course. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Uh, It's upon the teaching of Christ and the gospel of Christ that the church is built. As we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, again, Only those who are believers are part of this church. That church is built on the teaching of Jesus Christ, the good news of his perfect life, innocent death, and glorious resurrection on behalf of sinners. And it's by virtue of faith in Christ and those works that the church is holy and without blemish in God's sight. Now, concerning this church, uh, Jesus himself had said in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It will endure to the very end of the age, till the end before Judgment Day. And history shows uh, how true this statement is. 
great kingdoms of the world. Uh, we think about the Roman Empire. It, it, it came and went. It's gone. And yet the church is still here. In spite of all the early persecutions, in spite of all of the attempts to trample it and to snuff it out, the church is still here to this very day. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That doesn't mean that it's always necessarily appears to be thriving to human eyes, but nevertheless, it will always remain to the last day. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So apart from faith in Christ, no one comes to the Father. And of course, this exclusive claim is echoed in the book of Acts. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that notion, of course, flies in the face of popular culture today, where everyone wants to say, well, you know, there's more than one road home. You might take your way, I'll take mine. Even looking at world religions and saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Buddhist, whatever it might be, and eventually we're all going to get to the same place. That is not true according to Jesus' own words. And this is not something that a church person has said. This is coming from the words of Christ himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, except through faith in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet said, you know, God through the prophet said, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the church is to be found. We talked about these external marks by which we might identify her in this world as being the preaching of the gospel. Uh, it's that word that accomplishes God's purpose. And uh, you might look around and say, well, these big churches that are filling stadiums, they must really be doing something right. They must really have the right word. Well, not so quick. Remember, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. In practical sense, somebody could be preaching complete nonsense, complete falsehood, and filling stadiums. In fact, uh, St. Paul would tell us that in the last days, people will heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear and they'll abandon the gospel. And so today it's not surprising that some of the some of the preachers that have the biggest followings are those who tell people what they want to hear. And sometimes, you know, well that's always a dangerous thing. In fact, uh, we need to hear the truth even when that truth is not very uh, flattering to us in regard to our sin. But most importantly, we obviously need to hear the truth about our Savior, Jesus Christ, for there's salvation found in no other name under heaven. So the church is certainly found wherever the gospel is proclaimed. From these verses that I've just referenced, uh, we've kind of established a few characteristics of the church, namely that the church is one. There's one church, not many churches. That the church is made up of all believers in Christ and believers only that the church is invisible, since only God can see faith. The church is holy, because it consists of people who are declared holy by faith in Christ. The church is Christian, because it's built on Christ as the very foundation and cornerstone. Uh, so, it, you know, it naturally bears his name. 
uh, that the church will always exist because God promises to preserve his church on earth until Christ's return, and that this church is the only saving church for it is only by faith in Christ that a person can enter heaven. And likewise, what we just kind of finished by saying that the church is found wherever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. And of course, no single church has a monopoly on the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that every denomination preaches the gospel faithfully. It's just acknowledging that where the gospel is used, there's bound to be believers. So, I want to just say, you know, as a confessional Lutheran, confessional Lutherans do not believe that they are the only ones who are going to heaven. You know, a lot of people would say, well, you, you guys just think you're the only ones that know these things and that you're the only ones going to heaven. That's absolutely not true. On the other hand, we certainly don't say that there are many different teachings and they're all correct, as if one is as good as the next. No, St. Paul would warn us that a little leavens the whole lump, and certainly poison is always detrimental to us, false teachings being spiritual poison. So, false teachings differences do matter, especially uh, when they pervert or distort the gospel. So, what does the Bible teach about visible Christian churches then? So, we've talked about the true church, which is consisting of all believers, and one that only Christ or God himself sees. What about, what are we to make of this world that we live in where there are 30,000 plus Christian denominations or, or churches that call themselves Christian? So, we need a little guidance, I think, in this regard. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, we can say that certainly the church uh, becomes visible where Christians gather together in the name of Christ. Uh, most often that happens in congregations, as we think about local congregations. And... Um, We'll talk more about, uh, you know, what's beyond the, the local congregation in just a second. In the book of Revelation, uh, we read, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the scriptures themselves also speak about churches in the plural. Uh, you know, St. Paul in his letters can say to the churches who are in Galatia or wherever he, he might be writing to. So, we're not wrong in acknowledging that there are many churches, but again, they draw their name because of the believers who gather there, uh, not because it's a building called a church. I mean, uh, the church, properly speaking, is a people. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So, uh, in this life, believers and unbelievers, the wheat and the tares, uh, both kinds of fishes, if you will, will be gathered side by side, side oftentimes in these visible assemblies of Christians, and we don't see the difference. We can't see in people's hearts but on the last day, it'll all get sorted out, so to speak. So, just from these couple of verses, or a few verses, we've seen that the Bible speaks of churches or congregations being established for the preaching of the gospel, and of course, for the administration of the sacraments. And we think about Jesus' command to baptize all nations and 
to do this in remembrance of me as he referred to the Lord's Supper, and that in such visible gatherings or churches, there can be, and there is, besides true believers, also unbelievers or hypocrites who do not belong to the one invisible church. So everybody who uh, wants to condemn Christianity today can say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, I don't want to join them because it's just a bunch of hypocrites and so on. Uh, there's a certain element of that that we would acknowledge. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are certainly hypocrites, uh, but it's kind of a self-righteous notion that you're, you're not a hypocrite, right? That you're somehow better than that. And it's within the church that God dispenses his gifts of salvation. And so every true believer would certainly want to be where Christ himself promises to be, dispensing uh, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation that he won for all sinners on the cross. So uh, this, this is going to be important as we go on. What does the Bible teach about true and erring visible Christian churches? Obviously, if you've uh, thought ahead as to what I've been talking about, not everybody can be right. And so obviously we would conclude that there are true churches and there are false churches, right? In Matthew 28, Jesus said that the church is to teach and to observe all things that he has commanded. Notice it doesn't say, he doesn't say teach the things that are convenient for you or teach the things that people like to hear or you know, you hand select the important parts for them. He wants everything that he's commanded, everything that he's taught to be observed and taught. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to throw out and what parts we want to keep. So this, this sort of uh, American notion of Christianity, you know, this sort of choose your own adventure or buffet style approach to Christianity is certainly not compatible with the Bible. And by that, I mean wherein, you know, I, I don't really like that, so I'm going to find a church that doesn't really teach that, but I kind of like this, so I'm going to find a church that teaches that. And, and we, we become the final decider of what's good, right, and salutary, rather than what Christ himself has said and taught and the scriptures teach. And Jesus, in fact, warns against hypocrisy and this kind of a false approach. In Matthew 15, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I've stated this before, and I think it's worth repeating, that in the church, we neither want to add to God's word nor subtract from it. So there's a danger on both sides of the road. And you could say there's a danger in legalism, adding to God's word, making a bunch of man-made laws that the Bible doesn't teach. But there's an equal danger on the other side of the road, which is liberalism, which decides, hey, well, I don't think we need to believe that anymore. That's out of the times. It's out of date with where we're at now. We need to update this, this faith, so to speak, to make it more uh, current and palatable to the masses. Both things are certainly condemned and dangerous according to the scriptures. So from uh, these verses, we learn that a true visible congregation or a larger church body, and I should have said, you know, as small congregations find other congregations with whom they have true Christian unity, where they are united in the faith, where they teach the same thing, oftentimes they will gather together and form associations. Or uh, in, in our case, we have what are called synods, uh, which means a walking together. 
We belong to the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, which is a small church body of 120-ish congregations. Uh, We are in fellowship with other church bodies around the world, but we are a church body that has agreed to walk together in a common confession of faith. So if you go into one ELS church or another, you're going to hear the same thing. At least that's the way we would like it to work, right? I mean, we are united in what we believe, in what we teach, and what we confess. So we have found God a pleasing unity, and uh, we have united so that we can do together what we can't do on our own. So our congregation here is a fairly small rural congregation. It would be tough for us to have a seminary or a college to train our church workers. It would be tough for us to send people overseas to do mission work because we don't have that kind of resources. But together with other churches who share our confession, we're able to do those things. So there's a value to joining together with other like-minded and common confessing Christians. So uh, again, a true visible congregation or larger church body is one which has, teaches, and confesses everything the Word of God teaches and uses the sacraments the way Jesus wants them used. So it it teaches the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That also means that it will practice church discipline. It doesn't turn its eyes as uh, to errors or falsehood or gross sins. On the other hand, an erring visible congregation or larger church body, you could even say denomination, uh, that would certainly be a kind of a, a category of a larger church body, is one which does not teach everything the Word of God teaches or teaches as God's Word things that are not taught in the Bible. Churches or groups that do not teach the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ and his atoning work are not Christian. These are not erring churches. These are false churches. So, uh, how would I describe that maybe in a way that's a little simpler to understand? There are many different denominations, and by by denominations, I'm talking about, uh, you you know, the big ones like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Pentecostal, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Eastern Orthodox, whatever it might be, and there are many, many, so uh, that's not an exhaustive list by any means, that would be a denomination, and each denomination tends to have its own unique teaching. But obviously, you can't categorize them all under one heading. Oftentimes, within a denomination, there are uh, variations on that denomination. So, for instance, in Lutheranism today, you will find some very conservative, staunch uh, Bible-believing congregations and church bodies. Uh, We call them confessional Lutherans, but you will also find some very, very liberal church bodies as well that don't hold to the confession, the Lutheran confession at all. They they bear that name, but they're not truly Lutheran in, in the sense of what defines Lutheranism. And I would imagine it's the same in, you know, the Baptist church or the Methodist church or whatever church you might want to talk about. So I'm not trying to generalize and put everybody into the same category, but just so you have an idea of what a a denomination is. Now, when we talk about those who deny the Trinity or the deity of Christ as not being a Christian church, but a false churches, under that category, we would probably categorize uh, such organizations such as um, the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that might come as a surprise to some people because they certainly speak about Jesus. They might even speak about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But when you press them on it, you'll see that they don't really teach that Jesus is God in the flesh, eternally begotten of the Father, that he is not made. They might teach that Jesus is a good man whom God sort of uh, bestowed a spirit upon or something like that, or he's a good example, or he became God in a small g sense, but not he's not truly God from eternity. So those would be the kind of uh, bodies, even though they might sound very Christian at times, are not to be identified with the Holy Christian Church because they deny the deity of Christ and his atoning work. So how do we use all of this information? And, you know, is there a use for it? Obviously, again, the push in our world, the push of what we call the ecumenical movement, is that we should all just agree to disagree. We should overlook our differences and everybody should just get together, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Obviously, I'm, I'm being a little bit sarcastic and exaggerating, but I think, you know, from experience, you would know that that's true. They'd say, well, that's just what God wants us to do. He wants us to love everyone. We shouldn't get caught up in doctrine and differences. And I would take a step back and I would say, you know, what, what is really being said there? Whose doctrine is the scriptures? Who's given us these teachings? Well, God has. That's what the Bible itself teaches. In saying differences don't matter, really what we're saying is we're saying God's teachings don't really matter. That truth and error don't really matter. That falsehood doesn't really matter. And obviously, that's not true. That's, that's completely false. It's a dangerous lie. And the idea that we can focus on being loving toward one another, but we can neglect loving God by holding to his word, uh, that's just, that's silly. So this is, a, this is a, a teaching that does matter. Now, obviously, we want to avoid any sort of hint that somehow we're being self-righteous and we're saying we're the true church and everyone else is wrong. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is if we are truly loving and caring toward God and if we are truly loving and caring toward our neighbor, then we don't just overlook these things. The differences do matter. You know, we certainly would want to do everything in our power to work to overcome those differences, but always in a God-pleasing way. You know, the unity that we seek is not a man-made unity. It's a God-given unity. And he gives that unity through truth, not through falsehood, not through human organizations overlooking their differences so that they can get together and, you know, pretend everything's fine. So we would certainly long for Christian fellowship with all believers and we certainly believe that there are true believers in, in all the denominations. So this is not a matter of self-righteousness, but certainly our love for God would compel us and our love for our neighbor to cling to the truth. And where somebody has departed from that truth, the only loving thing is to try to bring them back to the truth rather than allowing them to go in error. Now, I've, I've sometimes used the illustration as, as a parent if you saw your child driving down a road that was going to lead them off of a cliff, you wouldn't say, well, that's wonderful, darling. Uh, you know, you've chosen that and I support you in whatever direction you want to go. That would be the, the opposite of love. That would be foolish. That would be dangerous. And it's the same thing when we talk about the scriptures. Uh, although we don't say that we're the only true believers, and we certainly acknowledge that there are other believers in all these denominations that use the scriptures and proclaim the gospel, or at least where it's read, it's not to say that those are equally good or 
um, you know, safe paths for people to tread on. If there's error or falsehood, that can always be a very real danger to somebody's eternal fate, to their soul, to their salvation. So that's a very dangerous thing, and we would certainly not overlook that and just say it doesn't matter. So in 2 Corinthians, St. Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. How do we do that? How do we examine ourselves? Uh, certainly we can say, well, do I believe in Jesus as my Savior? Yeah, that, all that stuff is true. But we're not talking about just our personal faith. We're talking about the faith, the faith that was once delivered to the saints, the, the faith that's handed down to us in the scriptures. So we can also examine ourselves by sort of measuring what we believe against the measuring stick of the Holy Scriptures. Does it add up? Do we believe what the Bible teaches? Or have we adopted our own views and opinions? And remember, uh, we said this is not just a matter of interpretation. We talked about this in some of the earlier episodes. We don't believe that we interpret the Bible. If the Holy Spirit is the author, he is perfectly capable of interpreting himself. And what that means in practical terms is if there is a passage that's difficult to understand, we have the entire rest of the scriptures to shed light on that particular passage. So rather than reading into something that we think it might say or what it should say, what does the rest of the scriptures say in regard to that particular teaching? And in doing so, we allow God to interpret God. Can truth be known? Well, certainly Jesus said, if you're my disciples, you'll, you know, you'll abide in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In fact, John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So not only is truth something that we can know, it's only within the truth that we find true freedom according to Christ. So as his disciples, we certainly have the desire to abide in his word and to abide in that truth. And of course, it's not something we can do by our own power or strength. It's something that we obviously need the Holy Spirit uh, for and to guide us into all truth as well. In the book of Acts, we read of the early church that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So there we get a glimpse into what worship looked like at the time of the early church, at the time of the apostles. As they gathered together, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the scriptures, as we would, we would know them today. So there was this gathering together. They didn't neglect. It wasn't just every Christian for themselves. It wasn't just me and my Jesus, me and my Bible, like is often the case today in our world. Uh, they saw the value of gathering together. As St. Paul would talk about the church being the body of Christ and each one of us members, each serving a different function. You know, uh, the eyes are not the ears, the ears are not the nose, and so on and so forth. But each one is given for the good of the whole. So in other words, no Christian is an island. We need other people. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they need us so that it's a community. We're saved in community. In this community, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the breaking of bread would be an idiomatic expression, uh, a reference to the Lord's Supper. As we see in the history of the church, the Lord's Supper the partaking of the Lord's Supper was at the very heart and center of Christian worship, and it was for centuries. The notion that we find today in Christianity where it's celebrated occasionally, 
but was certainly not that way for centuries and centuries. So just to, to be aware of that. And also the prayers that are mentioned there, it's not just a generic, uh, what's, what am I feeling in my heart prayers. Uh, they continued much in the pattern that was seen in the synagogues where there were set prayers or psalms that were used in the corporate worship as people, Christians gathered together. They would continue to pray the psalms and so on that were, that were fulfilled in Christ. They would see the psalms as the prayer book of the Christian church as well. And we do to this day. In 2 Thessalonians 3, St. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. So we certainly want to do all in our power to pray for the church, to continue to promote the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, to do what we can to um, support that ministry and to, to, to join a church where the truth is taught in its truth and purity and there's not falsehood taught. And as we think about mission work, we think about Jesus' words to go and make disciples of all nations. So certainly uh, there is this idea that if we have shared in this good news, if we benefit from this good news, it's only natural uh, that we would want others to share in it as well. I mean, we do this all the time, whether it's a movie or a good book that we've read, you say, oh, you know who would love this book? I got to give it to so-and-so. And we're excited because we want them to share in it. Oh, I know you're going to love this movie. I know you're going to love this book. And yet, uh, when it comes to our faith, we don't do that. But that's, that's the natural expression. So this is not just a legalistic command, well, you need to get out there and, you know, be, be preaching at people. No, uh, not everybody has that gift or that ability but certainly we, we are always prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And certainly we want to share that enthusiasm that we have for our Savior with others in a variety of different ways, including supporting mission work around the world if we can. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, St. Paul writes, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So again, uh, we support the gospel ministry where we find it in its truth and purity. This is why we give offerings, right? It's not somehow to make things right with God. It's, it's a natural fruit of our faith. If we're benefiting from the gospel uh, ministry in our midst, we want to see that continue. We want to see it continue for the next generation. So we support it, uh, not only with money. I mean, uh, that's the one I think that most people, say, well, the church is only after money. It's not the only ways. When we talk about stewardship in a broad sense, it can be our time, it can be our talents, and in a whole host of different ways that we can uh, help support that gospel ministry. Maybe it's teaching Sunday school or, you know, volunteering to help out in different ways at the church. But nevertheless, we, we, we support that gospel ministry. In 1 Corinthians 16, St. Paul talks about that, especially in regard to offerings. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So but really here we have a reference to planned, proportionate giving. We, we give to God from the first fruits. What do we have that we didn't receive from him? Everything that we have is a gift from him. So very often our sinful nature can be stingy and say, well, I don't want to give. What is the church going to do with my money? Well, no, uh, we don't give to the church. We give to the Lord. And once it's left our hands, it's not our money, is it? And it's never was our money to begin with. It was what he gave us. And un unfortunately, you know, there are many churches where that's the only thing you're going to hear about is giving money. And that turns a lot of people off. 
it can be very distasteful. And that's certainly not proper. That's not proclaiming the gospel. But as we think about the Christian life, you know, the scriptures certainly do speak of it. So it's not wrong to talk about it. And we give to God from our first fruits, not from what's left over. We give to him in proportion as he's given to us. For people who have a lot, that might be more. For people who have very little, we think about the widow and her mites, you know, that's, it's going to be significantly less. But certainly we do what we can to support the gospel ministry in our midst. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we always want to be on the lookout for false prophets. And how do we do that? We measure everything that is said or taught against the scriptures to see whether it's true. And that's not just saying, hey, yep, that's exactly what it says. It says it's the same thing he just said right there. There's a context and what do the rest of the scriptures say too? As I mentioned before, we look at the sum total of all that the scriptures teach before we do that kind of discerning. And uh, we call that using the analogy of faith. We don't just take something out of context and say, yep, that's exactly what it says. No, because somebody could easily be distorting it. So, in, in fact, Jesus' warning here gives us uh, sort of some insights that very often false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing. So they don't look dangerous. They don't wear a sign over their head that says, oh, you know, watch out for me. I'm a false prophet. Very often they come looking sincere, devout, pious, uh, maybe even good in our eyes or to our ears, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. doesn't mean that they always have bad intentions or that they're, they, they might very well think they're doing the work of the Lord, but if they're teaching falsehood, there's still a, certainly a danger to us. So we want to be aware of that. 1 John 4, St. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, John writes this in the first century, and if it was true then, you can only imagine how true it must be today as well. Uh, to test the spirits because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, the minute God sets up his church, the devil sets up his chapel right across the street. And this has been going on since day one. I mean, you can go into the Old Testament and you find God sending prophets, but there's also counterfeit prophets. And that carries over into the New Testament. Since the earliest centuries of the church, uh, the church on earth, the church militant as we often call it, is constantly at battle from outside of it and also from within as false teachers arise. And very often, these are the occasions that bring about division, right? So why are there so many denominations? Well, at some point, there was an argument about a teaching. And this group sided with this teaching, and this group went with this particular teaching. And yet, both of them cannot be true, right? So one stands on the side of falsehood, one st stands on the side of truth, and now you've got a division. And then as time goes on, those divisions become even more minute and until you end up with a splintering that goes down to splintering and so on and so forth. Uh, and thus we have 30,000 plus Christian denominations. It's certainly not a good thing, but in another sense, there's always this sifting. Uh, those who will stand on the truth and uh, abide in the truth uh, that they might be known. So certainly the division that we see within Christendom is to be expected especially in the face of falsehood and false teachers and everything that the scriptures said. In talking about all of this, there are these practical warnings for us to, to examine ourselves, to test the spirits, to beware of false prophets. 
And then also, as St. Paul would say in his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Now, notice how he says uh, what they do to create divisions. He says they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine, contrary to the teachings that you've been taught. And then what does he say to do about that? He says, avoid them. So we don't want to sit at the feet of a false teacher. You know, sometimes I've asked parents, well, how much poison do you think is acceptable to give your children? And they would say, well, that's a stupid question. Of course, no poison, you know. Well, you know, a little bit of poison should be fine, right? It's not going to kill them right away. Well, you know, that's kind of the mindset with those who say, well, you don't have to be completely on the side of truth. I mean, as long as it's the the basics, I mean, that's the, the gist of it, right? Uh, no, because every falsehood is potentially dangerous. It's a spiritual poison that can potentially lead us astray from Christ and by which we forfeit salvation. So, St. Paul has strong words, avoid false teachers. Don't sit at their feet, don't promote them, don't uh, support them, avoid them. And so some of the division that we see within Christendom is necessary. And, and St. Paul even says that in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, you know, I hear there is division amongst you. In some ways, it must be this way. So we shouldn't be scandalized necessarily or surprised that we see all of this uh, division within visible Christendom. And yet, as we, as we heard earlier, the true church is one. It remains one. And we will see that especially on the last day as, as uh, believers and unbelievers are separated. And uh, then we'll see the true unity of the church as it, as it existed, even though we didn't see it here on earth, only by faith we clung to it in the pure gospel and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. So we use the doctrine of the church properly when we become members of the true church by sincere faith in Christ as our Savior, that's first and foremost, uh, but also when we belong to a congregation, a synod, or a denomination which teaches everything the Word of God teaches and uses the sacraments properly. And let me just say, if you don't believe that your church does that, then why would you belong to it? Sometimes I'll tell people, if St. Paul were alive today in your town, which church would he belong to? And if you can't confidently say he would belong to my church or my congregation, then why are you there? Think about that. So we use the doctrine of the church properly uh, when we do all in our power to maintain, promote, and extend God's kingdom by prayer, personal service, and financial support. And also when we avoid churches which teach falsely and all other organizations that profess a false religion. Now, while Jesus certainly encourages us to join with fellow believers in worship and fellowship, he also tells us to avoid worship and fellowship that denies what the Bible teaches. So we don't ever want to give the impression that we're condoning falsehood in our associations. And for this reason, we do not worship with churches that deny the teachings of the Bible. Uh, and obviously, this is kind of a reference to our personal stance, and we don't join with groups that make worship part of their rituals, such as the lodges, the animal lodges, the moose, the elks, the whatever, the eagles, that kind of thing. That sounds strange to our ears because people will say, those are just fraternal fellowship. They're just social organizations more than anything. And yet, when you look at their practices, they have entrance rites. They've got ceremonies, religious services where they offer prayers. 
They even have teachings in regard to how a person is saved or gets to heaven. And when you look at those teachings, it doesn't confess, it's only by faith in Christ, it doesn't confess only by the true God, the triune God, it's a generic deity, a generic faith. And uh, very often they're proud of the fact that they teach those things because they think it gives them sort of credibility. We're, we're religious, you know, we, we have an we, we uh, oath where people take an oath to a God, they swear in a Bible or whatever it might be, probably not. But um, So you, you'd want to examine those things. And, it, you know, if you find yourself immersed in that, there's, a, there's an inconsistency in your confession then between what the scriptures teach and what you profess as a Christian and what you're holding to by your membership in those organizations. And uh, that would obviously, you'd want to resolve that uh, on the side of truth, if at all possible. So these things do matter, and certainly they do complicate our lives at times as we, as we encounter family and friends and relatives who maybe don't share our viewpoints or our, our beliefs and our confession of faith. And uh, that can make for some uncomfortable conversations. It can make for some awkward times when we have to avoid certain organizations or associations or gatherings uh, so that we don't promote falsehood. The world looks at that as, oh, you're just being self-righteous or you think you're better than everyone else. And that's absolutely not the truth. It should not be the truth. We should never see ourselves that way. On the other hand, we certainly believe that God's truth matters. We certainly think that you know, what he says is most important of all things. So we don't ever want to give the impression as though it doesn't. So, uh, you know, I've said a lot today. I'm sure there's plenty for you to consider and think about. And I, again, I know this is not an easy thing, but if you're trying to make sense of the church as the scriptures present it, and then also what we see in this world with many churches and many denominations, hopefully this gives you a little bit of insight. But as always, you're always welcome to send us your questions or comments. Um, so on behalf of Western Kashkanong Lutheran Church and on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Warren Thompson. Uh, join us next time. We'll see you soon.